If you will take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Here's where I'm going to begin. Can you believe we finally made it to December 2020? I didn't think we'd ever get here. I mean, it's not like it got here quick. I mean, 2020 has been one of those crazy years. Could I get a witness? I'm telling you. And the truth is, is that I've only been with you two and a half months or so. But we've experienced some of the craziness right here on the creek. I mean, just the last couple of weeks have been have been crazy. Today, I'm going to offer you a message that I'm guessing that you will never have heard this topic. Go ahead, Todd. Today is the catastrophe of Christmas. Now, most of us, we do not think in terms of a catastrophe at Christmas, unless the Christmas tree fell over and it burned the house down. Or little Susie didn't get what she wanted, so she kind of... Um, Melted down. Y'all got what I'm saying? Am I, am I speaking where you're sitting? I mean, we just don't think in terms of catastrophe that way. If I were to say, what do you think of a Christmas? Catastrophe would be the last, the last thought in your mind. And yet, today, today, we're going to talk about the catastrophe of Christmas. You see, when we think of catastrophes, we think in other ways. For instance... We began 2020, into January, we started hearing about a COVID virus. And it turned into, about six weeks later, it turned into a pandemic, things closed down, and now everything's COVID. I mean, the, the pandemic turned into pandemonium, which turned into a crazy political year. And on top of all that, did you realize that we had 12 named storms? to strike the United States of America this year. That's a lot of life and property being destroyed, which is how we normally think. In life, catastrophe is the loss of life and a loss of property, and certainly it is no argument for me. But I want to ask you this morning, is that the greatest catastrophe that we can experience? Is it the greatest catastrophe we can experience? I'm going to suggest to you that there's a greater catastrophe. And I want to illustrate it by starting in the first book of the Bible. In Genesis, Adam and Eve lived in a perfect world with one rule. Teenagers, wouldn't you love to have that? One rule. You think you could have kept one rule? One rule. And then they disobeyed. They broke the rule. And most people see they got thrown out of the garden. That's the catastrophe. But is that really the catastrophe? Or is the catastrophe actually that they had this personal relationship with Creator God and they lost it? No longer could they walk with God in the cool of the day. Two chapters over, Cain kills Abel. Murder is always a catastrophe, a loss of life. But is that the real catastrophe in that story? It is a catastrophe, but is it the, the big one? Could it be that the real big catastrophe in the Cain and Abel story be this? That for the first time in humankind, man brought to God what he thought God should have as opposed to what God required. 
Honestly, I think that goes on today in the 21st century America. That we give, we try to give God what we think He should have, what He should want, as opposed to what He requires. Catastrophe. You scoot on chapters, and I'm going to stop after this one because I could go all the way through the Bible. And the flood wiped out everybody but seven. Properties and land, gone. Certainly that's the catastrophe. Well, could it be this? Could the real catastrophe be that out of the whole population of the world, only seven people chose to obey God? Now, it's against that backdrop that I want to point our attention today to the catastrophe of Christmas. And I think it's passed many, passed by many, and not, not, any, not because they're bad people, not because we're bad people, but, we, but it's passed by us because of all kind of humanistic things. Luke chapter 2. If you'll stand with me, we're going to read one verse of Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the, script, it'll be on the screen. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Verse Number seven. And this is what it says. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger as a feeding trough because, here it is, there was no room for them in the end. Now, would you look at the screen with me a second? Do you see that last two lines, because there was no room for them in the end? Through modern technology and a little help from Todd, I want to show you how that's going to read today. One more time, Todd. There was no room for him in the end. Herein lies the catastrophe of Christmas. There was no room for him. And in large measure, there is no room for Him today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that You will take Your Word, and I pray that You will apply it to our hearts. I pray that You will press it in in such a way that You stir up an emotional reaction within us. Help us see and hear you clearly today. And when the time of decision comes, give us the courage to respond to your voice. We will be stubborn and we will be hard-headed. And we will be prideful. And Lord, I pray you not let us off the hook today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want you to think about what I just said for a second. There was no room for Jesus. There is no room for Jesus. I just kind of want you to ponder that in your heart. To think that there was no room for Jesus, God's Son, God's love gift, God's promise, God's 
provision, God's best to this world is simply unimaginable. But the Scripture says there was no room. I want you to think about it. This did not surprise the world. It had been foretold by prophet after prophet after prophet. And it's kind of like you ask your kids sometimes, you listening to me? You see, God sent Jesus in this world. Now, some of you are sitting there going, Brother Jerry, it's not really the case. Jesus got here, so what's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Because you see, the no room in Bethlehem, no room at the end, I believe translates to the 21st century. I believe it translates to the creek. We do a lot of good things and wonderful things. But in point of fact, we try to give Him what we want Him to have instead of making room for Him and letting Him bring what He wants to bring. So today, here's what I want to do. I want to offer you three places. Three places that, there no, that there's no room for Jesus. I was reading this one time, and it just jumped, these just jumped out at me. First of all, there's no room for him in the hotel. The hotel. Now, you can go ahead and smile. That's okay. The Scripture clearly says there's no room for him in the end. I know that the inn in Bethlehem and a skyscraping hotel of the 21st century are not the same. But an inn of days past, a hotel of present, they both accommodate people. So they have the same function. And the word hotel you see on the screen is a microcosm of the, of the concept world. There is absolutely no room in this world for Jesus. Have you been watching over the past few years? You're not isolated. We're not isolated out here on the creek. Have you been watching? Business after business, government after government, has removed Jesus from everything. I mean, it was just a few years ago that businesses began to stop saying, Merry Christmas. By the way, this is not an advertisement to go. But I went into the restroom at Chili, Sweet Chili Peppers in Hattiesburg, and I was delighted to see the words, Merry Christmas. Because you see, business after business, Staples put out this statement many years, several years ago. We use the term Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas. We do this because it does not offend any other religion. And we do it to remain politically correct. Best Buy stores stopped years ago putting Christmas in a seasonal advertisement. I could go on and on and on, and I could just tell you that the business after business that we frequent chooses not to use Christ in their Christmas. Now, having said that, some of you are going, but I wish you'd tell us some of those. Well, I still want to get into a whole list. I'll give you a few. Sears, Sonic, Target, Kmart. Delta Airlines, American Airlines, Wells Fargo, just to start. 
In fact, a few years ago, it was so rampant that First Baptist Church Dallas bought a website, GrinchAlert.com. They've now let that go. It's not there anymore. And they would list everything that did not honor Christ at Christmas. If I were to dig in, you could find more evidence for state and local and national governments that just do not have room for Jesus. Have you ever considered why businesses and government might not have room for Jesus and they want little to do with Jesus? It's the same reason the individual does. Please listen. Because if you accept Jesus as a gift from God, if you accept Him as God's Son and the Savior of the world, if you accept this being His birthday, the result of that is that it stands to reason that you're going to have to worship Him. And the truth is, and the truth is, the reason there is no room in our hotel today is because the world does not want to worship and serve anything except self. Self. Self is the big cheese today. Now, before you get really on your high horse, I'm, I'm immersed in books. Because I'm so dumb, I have to read all the time. I read this book, and I read other books. I just reading a book on the post-pandemic church. The staff and I are reading a book together entitled, I Will. The chapter we're going to talk about in staff meeting, either tomorrow or Tuesday, one whole section of it has to do that the church has become preference-driven, as opposed to Scripture-driven. And if you read on what Tom Rainer says, he talks about a church membership in the 21st century in America. This is the concept. It's the country club concept. I pay my dues so I get my needs met. It's all about me. I want you to think about that. I heard Michael Catt read retell this story that I'd heard Francis Chan tell about himself. Francis Chan, he was a West Coast pastor, planted a church. They resigned the church and they went, they thought God was leading them to a foreign country. And I think they went to India, maybe uh, Thailand. And I believe the last place that they stopped was China. And he's telling the story. He said, so we wound up in a training session in China for Christians about how to deal with uh, persecution. And they said, well, here's the thing. If they come and knock on the door and they start shooting, run. said, the truth is, most of the time they just shoot over your head. And somebody else said, well, not all the time. We lost so-and-so the other day because they shot them. They said, how long do you run? He said, run until you're out of gas and we'll come get you and get you back together. And so they were talking about that. And in that meeting, they were talking about how, uh, and one of them said, you remember this to this guy? You remember when they broke in and that big guard came and cracked you up over the head with a gun? 
and you were out for three weeks? He said, yeah, man. He, and Francis Chan relates, and he said, it's almost like, a, almost like just a coffee fellowship back in the States. And they were talking about all the persecution. And finally, Francis Chan said, this 19-year-old boy looked at me, and he said, um, Pastor, how do y'all choose churches in America? And Francis said, I was embarrassed. And I wasn't going to lie. He said, well, he said, we do it a little different in America. He said, we, uh, um, we go to a place where they have beautiful buildings. We choose our churches because of the beautiful buildings. We like the beautiful buildings. Or we choose our church according to the pastor, whether we like his preaching style or not. And if we don't like his preaching style, we go down the road to someone else. Or we choose our church according to the worship style. Or we choose our church according to the kids' programs. And Francis Chan said, I was about in the middle ways of that, and that 19-year-old picked up his Bible and he said, How do you get that from this? As Michael Catt related the story, the piercing question he asked was this. Why don't you go back and look at what you did last Sunday in services? Ask yourself, how did you get that from this? You see, there is no room for Jesus because we're all taken in America with ourselves. You know what my pet peeve is? Can I, I probably have a lot of them, so you may learn them over the years. My pet peeve started with McDonald's back in the 70s. You deserve a break. Today, every advertisement out there is you get, get what you deserve. You deserve this. May I just say this to you? If I've said it before, chalk it up to repetition as the mother of learning. You don't want to get into a discussion with God about what you deserve. We're all blessed beyond measure. If I take the symbolism, and i got to move on, if I take the symbolism of the hotel even to another level, those my age and older, you'll remember back before the days of the Internet, the only way you got in a hotel was to drive up there. And when the hotel sign was up and under the hotel... There was a two-part sign. It was illuminated. It said, no vacancy. And when there's vacancies, it would just say vacancy, and the no wouldn't be illuminated. I am really afraid that in the hotel today, the no vacancy sign is out. And there's no room for Jesus here. The second place that I think there's no vacancies. It's going to put, put your mind up, turn your mind upside down just for a second. But that night, there was no room in the heavens for Jesus. And now you're going, well, Brother Jerry, wait a second. Jesus is God's Son. Yes. So there's always room for heaven in, Jesus, for, in heaven for Jesus. Wasn't Jesus here before time began? And, and I never want you to forget this. I know you know it. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, 
The Word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. He was there from the beginning. And yes, that night in Bethlehem, there was a vacant seat on the right hand of the Father. But you need to hear this. In the mind of the Father, there was no room that night for Jesus in heaven. Do you know why? Because we're told, repeated, because God had sent Jesus to redeem and reclaim the people He loved. He sent Him for you. He sent Him for you. He sent Him to earth to bring us back to Himself. Illustration, can you imagine the President of the United States? Well, you know, I say this, and it happened recently, and he got fired, and it was a political storm. Can you imagine the President of the United States appointing an ambassador to Iraq, to Iran, to Israel, or to someplace else, only to find his ambassador staying at home in Washington, D.C., and trying to perform his functions there? You will not see that because the President wants his ambassador boots on the ground. That night, God sent Jesus boots on the ground. The Bible tells us repeatedly, John tells us that God sent Jesus. Paul in Galatians says, at just the right time, God sent Jesus. There was no room in heaven because he had an assignment. He had a task. And I make this point for you and me. Please listen. Do not miss this. As we look forward to the upcoming year, State of the Church Address in three weeks, we need to take our cue from Jesus. And we need to understand that we have an assignment from our Lord. Jesus left heaven and came to earth. His assignment was the redemption of the world. Our assignment is to let the world know. Let me pull that down a little bit, folks. We're going to do, Pud and I are working on mission trip, and we'll invite you to come go. But listen, our assignment is to let people on the creek know that Jesus is alive, that Jesus offers life, that Jesus offers friendship, that Jesus offers help, that Jesus offers hope, that it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. He's called us. To reach people right here. The only way people will know is that we live and let, let people see His life in us. We live and let people see His light in us. We live and we let people see His love in us. We live and we see, let people see His Spirit in us. It's the only way those out there will know the love and the salvation of Jesus. They must see Him in us. And they'll see it on how we talk to one another. How we talk to one another. How we treat one another. How we care for one another. How we minister to one another. How unselfish we are with what God has blessed us with. Brothers and sisters, we already love. God has given us so many resources in buildings and other things and people that we could, turn, we could do like they did in the 
action, New Testament, we could turn this world upside down if there's room for Jesus. The sad truth is this. There was no room for Jesus in the hotel. And there was no room for Jesus in the heavens. He was on assignment. If you've not been listening to anything I said, please stay with me for this last part. Because the third thing I see is that there's no room in the heart. No room in the heart. It doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing. The heart is vitally important. Physically. Physically. Your heart must beat. Todd and I have got had a lunch together, and we talked about this. He, he runs AAA, and he knows that I was a first responder. Can I just tell you as a first responder, when I got on scene, I'm to do three things to start with before I get information. Airway, breathing, circulation every time. Because you see, you can go there and set a bone. You can go there and set a bone or... or Set a bone, preparing it for, uh, uh, for transport. If they're impaled with something, you can get it ready for transport. You can put a collar on their neck. But I'll just tell you this. This is what John Glass impressed on us. You can do all those things, but if his heart's not beating, he's not going to make it. You have to make sure the heart is beating, and it's that important. The spiritual heart makes us controls us as to who we are, as to what we are, as to how we feel, as to where we go and what we say. The spiritual heart, it is at this point in this message that people tune me out. You've probably heard me say this before, and I'm going to say it until it's in... You know, when you hear something once, there's a little line in your brain. If you hear it twice, there's a thicker line. And the more you do it, the thicker the line gets until you remember it. I want you to remember this. It is an untruth. I could say it's a lie, but I love my grandparents, and I love my aunts, and my uncles, and I love the people who taught me and brought me up. They didn't intentionally teach me a lie. They thought it was the truth. But here's the untruth. Are you listening? No one can know what's in another person's heart. Brother Jerry, prove it. Well, the Bible proves it. Proverbs tells us the issues flow. The issues of the heart flow out of the mouth. Matthew tells us out of the out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if there's good things there, that comes out. If there's bad things there, that comes out. All you have to do is listen to how somebody talks. Watch how they act. You know what's in their heart. Especially if they get under pressure. You squeeze a lemon, you're not going to get orange juice. Could I get an Amen. You squeeze an orange, you're not going to get lemonade. You stomp your toe, you hit your finger. 
Mike Patrick stepped out to do security. I've been helping him on his house. That means I swing a hammer. If you hit the wrong nail, what do you say? Verily, verily. Something happens to you and, and you go, oh, I don't know where that came from. Well, I can tell you where it came from. It came from in your heart because if it's not in your heart, it's not going to come up. And I have to watch what I say in the pulpit because every time I say something in the pulpit, Dwayne puts it on the sign. A couple of weeks ago, I said this. I said this. I said, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. And it made its way on the sign to remind us. You see, the truth is your heart is transparent. You may not like it, you may not want it to be, but what's inside comes out. And when there is no room, there was no room for Jesus in the end to come into this world. I fear it was a preview of things to come, that there's no room in the heart for Jesus. It was almost 40 years ago. I got to know a songwriter named Lanny Wolf. He wrote many songs that we still sing today. He wrote a musical titled Noel is Jesus, Jesus is Born. It's a great little chorus. I was at a time when the choruses were just making their way around. It was our, it was, hey, it was our, for that program, it was our candlelight service. I'm just telling you, it was, it was striking. But in that musical, Noel, Jesus is Born, he wrote these words. Please listen. No room. No room for Him. No room to let Him in. No room for Jesus in the heart He made just for Him. Room for houses, lands, and pleasures. Room for things that pass away. But for the One who reigns forever, there is no room today. For me, those are true, and yet they're very heart-wrenching lyrics. Down where we live, there's rooms for houses, there's room for jobs, there's room for sports, there's room for family. By the way, better be careful letting your family take the place of God. You let your family take the place of God, you should love your family. You let your family take the place of God in your life, it can remove one of you. There will be no other God before me. That's what the Bible says. But as I start to land this plane, here's what I want to tell you. There's no room in your heart if your heart's already full. If your heart's already full. You see, Jesus doesn't come into your life to take part. I want to say that again. I don't think you were listening. Jesus does not come into your life to take part in your life. He comes in to take over your life. If He's not Lord of all, He won't be Lord at all. Empty in your heart, making room for Him is what repentance is all about. It's kind of like a glass. I could go down here and get this bottle. Kind of like this bottle. 
If I take and fill this bottle to the brim, you can't put any more water in it. In fact, if you put anything in it, it's going to run over. You see, if you want Jesus in your life, you empty out the bottle. You empty it out the heart. And you give Him the place that He demands. Not request, not simply expects, but demands. The catastrophe of Christmas. No room for Jesus. Family was sitting at a at their dinner at their lunch table on Christmas Day, eating and enjoying a scrumptious lunch that had that had a great Christmas. And mom looks down at little nine year old Susie. And she said, Hey Susie, baby, did you get everything you wanted for Christmas this year? Susie was chewing and she thought she swallowed it and she said, No, Mom, I didn't. But it's not my birthday. You know what Jesus really wants for his birthday? He wants to be invited into your heart. Not as an observer, not as a guest, not as a visitor. He wants to be invited into your heart. He wants your heart opened so that he can come in. The catastrophe of Christmas is that you won't do it. Let's pray together.